you know how they say the older you get, it seems like the faster time goes by. I feel I'm feeling that more and more. I feel like I'm already on the top of the roller coaster and I'm going downhill now. Because it doesn't seem like it's been about a year since Mark Talbert was with us. Mark was with us last year and brought a message from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, when I introduced Mark at that time, I had the, the privilege of telling you uh, that Mark is a good friend of our pastor, Isaac Mooneyham. And I think I might have mentioned at that time, and I'm going to remind you this morning if I didn't, that Mark and Isaac were co-teachers of a Sunday school class at the Tabernacle in Danville. And um, before Pastor Isaac came down to be our pastor, they were in the Gospel of John. And they were sharing the teaching opportunities. And Mark is still in the Gospel of John in his Sunday school class up there. And Isaac is studying with us in the book of John here at Wake Chapel. And Mark is going to continue in that train of thought this morning with us. And we're so grateful for Mark's ministry at the Tabernacle and for his ministry here with us for the second time at Wake Chapel. And we're glad to have uh, Mandy, his wife, with us. And we have uh, Abby and Noah on the front row here. And Hannah and Sarah went back with Mandy to Children's Church. So... uh, Isaac and Corey, they have one daughter and three boys. Mark and Mandy have one son and three daughters. So they're just kind of uh, doing a lot of things in the same train here. We're so grateful, Mark, for your ministry and for coming and sharing with us from the Gospel of John. You're welcome at our church. Thank you for coming. Mark Talbert. Well, good morning. If you would, take your copy of the Bible, and we're going to be spending most of our time today in John chapter 6. So if you will find your place there, and when you find John chapter 6, then if you will stick your thumb there and find John chapter 20, we're going to begin in John chapter 20 this morning. And As you are finding your way, I do want to thank you again for another opportunity to be with you. I thank your pastor for his invitation, and and it is a great honor to be a part of not only your Sunday morning service, but your study through John. It is is a fantastic book. I have enjoyed immensely my study of it as we're going through it in, uh, back at our church. We're a little bit ahead, but we're not finished yet, Uh, so it's it's slow going, but... um, Like your pastor, I am convinced that this is the way, the best way, the most profitable profitable way to study Scripture, to go through it verse by verse, to go through it line by line, to go through the ideas as they come about. And and as your pastor taught two weeks ago in in the passage just before where we're going to spend our time today, he mentioned some hard sayings. If you teach Scripture and study Scripture this way, you can't skip those. You don't get to. As much as you'd like to some days, you, you wonder, Lord, how am I going to explain this? And I'm so thankful for, for how your pastor handled his text two weeks ago, and, and today we're going to see some more things that are considered hard sayings of Christ. 
And next week, the text that you'll be into, the disciples will flat out tell him, these are hard sayings. So it will, it will be clear that, uh, that they are in the same boat that we are in as we study this. So as we, as we approach John and as we approach this gospel, we are given a, a great gift by the gospel writer. And that gift is found in chapter 20. If you have found your place, we're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 20 before we get into our text for today. So John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John thankfully explains to us why this book was written. He explains his train of thought and what his intended outcome is. These are written that you may believe. And he tells us in in those few verses a a couple of important things that we will see over and over as you you spend your time in John's gospel. We see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is a theme that comes up over and over and over again as John repeats that theme to us. He repeats it because we need to get it. We need to understand it. We need to understand it who Christ is and what he has done. He talks to us in those verses of the primary importance of belief, which we'll talk about a little bit today. He talks in those verses of the gift of eternal life that we have sang about and we'll talk about also today. And he tells us that these signs that are written in this book are written to point you to the truth. The signs are not the point. That was the case uh, often that, that those who saw them misunderstood them. But the way we talk through them with our kids when we're teaching things like this, we, we tell them when we go to the beach, when Isaac and Corey were going to the beach, they didn't stop at the first sign that said Oak Island and say, all right, kids, out. Here's the sign, 42 miles to Oak Island. No, the sign points the way to something, and that's exactly what these signs do. They point the way to Christ and who he is and what he's done. So the way to think about this, John explains that he is compiling, it's almost as if he's compiling a court case. He is building evidence. He is giving you information. Why? So that you may believe. So that I may believe. That's the point. I have read an article this week and a a seminary professor was quoted in it and he said, you cannot believe more than you know. And you cannot live higher than you believe. And that was very convicting to think through. All that I need to know is in this book, and I need to know all that I can know. Why? So that I can believe. So now that we have John's reasoning settled, uh, we can see that chapter 6 is no different. Chapter 6 fits right in with his theme. We see in, in just this chapter, it's a long chapter, but we see just in this chapter two of the seven signs that John records. The feeding of the multitude, which what we're going to discuss today comes out of that, and the walking on the water. Those two things have just happened. Most of the people who are listening to Jesus teach in our text today had their bellies filled the day before 
when he fed the multitude. Then the disciples overnight saw him walking across the water as they were trying to make their way across the sea. So both of those things we find in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 also, we see the first of the seven I am statements that John includes. And he repeats them. He has repeated them several times before we get to our text today. And we'll continue to repeat them. But look with me in John 6 verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then in verse 51, which is where you ended with Isaac a couple of weeks ago. This is what he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is what gets the Jews going. This is what sets them off. This is what gets them disputing as we're going to see in the first verse of our text today. So let's continue on. Beginning in verse 52, we're going to read down through verse 59. And then with our remaining time together, we're going to dig into these verses and hopefully try to be able to understand them. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for an opportunity to gather together with open Bibles in our laps as we read what you had taught all those years ago. Lord, as we open this text, as we dig into it, as we walk through it, as we we try to understand, we ask that your spirit would teach us. Lord, for we know that apart from that, we cannot understand this. So Lord, we ask now that you would teach us what you would have us to learn from this. And that having learned it, you would give us the will to be obedient to it so that we may look more like your son in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. All right, so our text today is rather graphic. It's, it's in our 2019 sensibilities. It's not something we like to talk about very often, eating flesh and drinking blood. It's not very pleasant, not very palatable. So why would Christ teach this? Why would he explain what he is explaining in this way? Why would he go through it as he has? So let's pick up in verse 52. And see if we can 
sort through it. The Jews then disputed among themselves. Well, right there, that tells you they're not happy with what's going on. When Isaac taught the passage before last week, it started out in very similar. Verse 41, the, group, the, the Jews grumbled among themselves. Well, now it's been ratcheted up. The Jews who thought they understood who Christ was, who thought they knew where he was from, how can this man say he came from heaven? I grew up with the guy. I don't believe any of this. How can, how can, how can this be so? So they're grumbling. They're, they're, they're talking under their breath, just like they would have, like Paul explains the, the Jews in the wilderness, grumbling for those 40 years. Well, fast forward just a few verses, and, and it's been up a notch. It's not grumbling. Now they're disputing. One commentator that I studied this week in, in reading and preparing for this rendered that word disputing as waging a war of words. They're arguing with each other. Now remember, this is the same group that 30 or 35 verses ago wanted to make this man their king. How fickle we are. We go from wanting to make him our king to grumbling to disputing. Now, the fact that they're disputing, the fact that they are arguing with one another, does that lead us to believe that maybe there are some who believe that there are some who are 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 okay with this teaching that want to learn more that want to understand possibly the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book of john explains to us that those people if they exist are vastly outnumbered so what are they disputing about what what has changed for them from grumbling to kicking it up another notch to disputing well it's verse 51 and what he says at the end If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That flew all over them. This does not sound right. This does not sound like something that comes from God. And so they, blinded by their unbelief, miss the point, as is the case often we see in John when, when Christ uses physical explanation, physical things to explain spiritual and eternal truths. They miss it. Remember Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of John. He comes to Jesus and, and Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. And what does Nicodemus say? How can I enter again into my mother's womb? How can I be born when I'm old? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. They missed it. Their hearts are hard. They do not believe. And they do not understand what he's teaching. Is he talking about cannibalism? Let's get that out of the way up front. Absolutely not. No, at no point in our text today, our text two weeks ago, the text next week, anytime we run across this, is that what he's talking about? And we'll, we'll try to understand why he explains things like he did today. But let's make that point clear. That is absolutely not the topic of conversation. But again, the Jews relying on their knowledge of who they thought Christ was, and, and even taking it a step farther, relying on their knowledge of who they thought the coming Messiah was going to be. This guy doesn't look like him. He says he's him, but we know what he's supposed to look like. He doesn't look like a carpenter. So they think they know. 
but they could not be any more wrong. So let's see how Christ responds. Verse 53. So the Jews are disputing verse 52. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, he answers them directly. He responds directly to their disputing. And what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, we will see as we walk through John, when Christ runs into people who are critical of his teaching or people who do not believe, he never backpedals. He never softens it up. He never says, well, listen, just listen, guys. Just let me, if you'll give me just a minute, I think I can persuade you. He never says that. Why? Because he's more interested in truth. He's interested in the truth, not a following, not a number. He's interested in truth. And, and again, right here, we see the same thing. Truly, truly, your version may say amen, amen, or verily, verily. John is very fond of recording this as Christ teaches throughout the book. And it means this is very important. This is a deliberate thought. This is something that I want you to make no doubt about or have no misunderstanding at what I'm getting ready to tell you. Pay attention. That's how he begins. And he ratchets it up. Verse 51, he talked about eating this bread and that bread is his flesh. He kind of alludes to it, but doesn't say it plainly. Well, it's quite plain in verse 53 what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why would he explain it this way? Again, as we read this at first glance, we think, that's kind of graphic. That's, that's kind of gory almost. And We're in church. We're not supposed to talk like that. Why would he do that? Well, let's dig into the verse. Let's see. First, who is he talking about? The Son of Man. The flesh of the Son of Man. Now, we know that to be Christ. As we study this book and any of the other Gospels and really any of the New Testament, we have to understand context. And the context is the people he is speaking to, all of this is happening to them in real time. All of the things he is teaching them is happening in real time. His disciples believe, but there are many things that they can't understand. He'll tell them that later. There are many more things that I need to tell you, but you can't bear it now. So even those who believe don't have a point of reference for this. What do you mean my Messiah is going to die? That doesn't compute with what I've been taught since I was in synagogue school growing up. It doesn't, that doesn't fly with what I understand the Messiah to be and who he is is going to be and what he's going to come and do. So we can see part of the, the reason that they're having trouble with this, especially since sometimes we have the same trouble and we have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit who is here to teach us and guide us. But he's talking about the Son of Man. And, and often, if you're like me, you think of God's Christ titles as Son of God, Son of Man refers to him being truly God and truly man, respectively. And that is absolutely true. But Son of Man is a messianic title. You find it in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel is explaining this vision and he sees the Ancient of Days who is God the Father. And then another one comes and shows up. 
who is likened to the Son of Man, who comes alongside the Ancient of Days, absolutely separate from Him, but absolutely equal to Him. Well, who is that? That's the man who's teaching in this synagogue in Capernaum that we're reading about. It's Christ. So he talks about the flesh and the blood of the Son of Man. Why does he use those terms, flesh and blood? Well, again, flesh, it references back to verse 51 where he is referencing his body. But again, in this verse, like we said a few minutes ago, Christ doesn't backpedal. Not only does he speak clearly of flesh, but he adds another term in there. Oh yeah, by the way, you got to drink my blood too. It's just crawling all over these guys who are sitting and listening. They're standing and listening to this. They cannot understand. They do not understand. They are not following because of the hardness of their hearts and their perceived offense. So what is he talking about? Again, we have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament. We understand what he's saying here. His flesh is referencing his body that would be broken, that would be nailed to a cross just a short time after these words were spoken. His blood, when that's referenced in Scripture, most oftentimes it's referenced in terms of a violent death. His blood was shed. His blood was spilled. When we read through that in the Old Testament, that's often what it refers to. A violent death where his body is broken. So taking these terms together, flesh and blood refers to Christ's atoning death on the cross, his saving work for us. And while this is new to them, this is new information that they are learning again in real time and trying to compute, trying to make sense of it, it's not new to the gospel. Remember back in chapter 1, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who is preparing the way for the Son of God to come. When Christ shows up, how does he first introduce him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even at the beginning of this gospel, even at the beginning of this ministry, his sacrificial death is in view. And not only here, not only in the gospel of John and the other three gospels, but all of scripture is centered on this. This is This is something we talk about week in and week out, and we have crosses that adorn our buildings, and we have crosses that we hang around our necks, and it has almost become so commonplace that we we take it for granted. We talk about, yes, Jesus died on the cross, and almost don't give it a second thought, And, and understandably so. It is so central to what we believe and what we understand that we hear it a lot. But I want to I invite you this morning to think on that. To think what that means. To think what happened. And to step back and look at not just the passage of Scripture that we're spending our time in this morning, but in Scripture as a whole. It all centers on that. It all centers on His mission of the cross. And what he came to do. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are disobedient and sin against God. 
What does he tell them? He talks of the seed of the woman. From the beginning, he had a plan. He was not caught off guard by Adam and Eve's disobedience. Continuing on in the book of Genesis, we run into Abraham. And God chooses Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant has three parts. Two physical parts, one spiritual part. The two physical are, I will give you descendants. He had no children. What do you mean you'll give me descendants? I'll give you descendants, like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And not only will I give you descendants, the second physical promise I made, he, he made to Abraham was, I will give you a land. And out of that land, out of that nation that was built with this man's family, beginning with Abraham's family, the third promise, the, the spiritual aspect of that covenant is made clear. Through your descendants, I will bless every nation on earth. An absolute reference to the Messiah coming through the nation of Israel that God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. All the way back at the beginning, he made a promise because he had a plan to redeem a people for himself. Carrying on with the Old Testament, we see the Mosaic Law. We see a lot of talk of flesh and blood in the Mosaic Law. So maybe there's a connection here. We'll get into that shortly. But we see God in his graciousness reveals to Israel, this is my standard. If you want to measure up, here it is. And he lists out five books of law that they are to follow. Well, the point of that was not so that they could check the boxes do everything on the list and make it to heaven. That was not the point. The point was for them to recognize, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot meet your standard. I have to have someone to help me. Not only help me, I have to have someone to do it for me. Now he does go along and, and continues on and explains to them, about the sacrifices that they are to make, when they are to make them, how they are to make them, what the point of them are, what the purpose for each one is, why you do this on this day and that on the other day. But again, that's, that was never the end game. That was never the point. That, like we read in John of signs, was a sign. It was a picture. The Old Testament points forward to one who is to come. The sacrificial system that we read about in the Mosaic Law points to a perfect sacrifice that is to come. Why do we read, or why do we not read in the New Testament of sacrifices being continued to be required? Has God's standard changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Absolutely not. What has changed? The sacrifice has changed. The perfect sacrifice has been made. There is no need for another. There is no need for repetition. There is no need to do it over because Christ in his last moments cried out, it is finished. It has been paid. It has been satisfied. The wrath has been taken. There's no need to continue with what we read about in the first five books. Then we, we carry on through the Old Testament. We read of the prophets who are 
time after time after time after time speaking to Israel and and explaining to them, your continued disobedience is going to bring judgment. God requires obedience. God will not allow sin to continue. But there's hope. There's a light that's coming that's going to shine in the dark. There's There's a root out of the stump of Jesse that's coming. There is a suffering servant that is coming. There is hope. Even in John's Gospel, when we get to the end of the book, we will see the account that John records of Christ's death on the cross. But all throughout it, here we see him talking about it, and many, many times we will see Christ refer to this hour. Remember? I think the first time we see it is chapter 2, the wedding feast. My hour has not yet come. We see that over and over and over again. As he walks through his earthly ministry, he says, my hour has not yet come. There is an hour coming, but it's not here yet. What is he referring to? The cross. What does Paul tell us? Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. The gospel distilled down. The hour that was to come, the whole point of Christ's ministry and life on this earth was for the cross. All of history centered around it. You go back and look through the Old Testament, the stories, the narratives. Queen Esther saved the Jewish people. Why? Because the promise God made to Abraham had not been fulfilled yet. The Messiah had not come through this lineage. So this lineage must be preserved. So this Messiah could come. So the hour could come. When you get to chapter 17, things change as Christ is praying in the garden and he says, Lord, my hour has come. It's here. The cross is right before him. So where do we land on this then? All of history points to this hour where the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist describes him, where the Son of Man, as Christ just describes himself, where the Messiah, the Christ, is to come and willingly lay his life down, willingly have his body broken, his flesh broken, his blood shed to provide a way. We read in Scripture that God is just. He will not look on sin. He will not allow sin. But he also, we also read that He is the justifier. He will make a way. He has made a way to give us an opportunity as sinners to be looked upon with Christ's righteousness because of what Christ is talking about here. Because of the atoning death that He faces on the cross. So, so maybe that helps us a little bit. We understand flesh and blood, why he is referring to that. Okay, we get it. You're talking about the death on the cross. We understand that. The mystery's been revealed. We understand what's coming better than those who were sitting there listening to this in real time. We know about the cross. We know about Sunday morning. We know about the rest of this. Okay, that makes sense. Flesh and blood. A sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice has to be made so that sin can be forgiven. 
We understand that. But why does he say eating and drinking? Let's continue on. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So verse 53, the idea is is stated negatively. Unless you do this, then you don't have that. Here, the same idea, but it's repeated positively. And you have to, you have to put your thinking cap on. And again, when we're studying scripture, the, the way for us to understand this, this is a continuous conversation. We stop and pick up and go week by week because our time is allotted. But there was a conversation that was ongoing that we have just taken a slice out of. Remember back, verse 40. Look back with me and see what he says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on that last day. Sounds a lot like verse 54, doesn't it? Very parallel. So what do we mean? Well, the best way we have to interpret Scripture is with other Scriptures. So as we read that, the same concept is described. Eternal life, raising up on the last day. What does it say in verse 40? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. What does it say in verse 54? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this idea of eating and drinking are graphic ways of explaining verse 40. They're ways for us to understand how we are to believe. We are to ingest this truth. We are to take this truth into our innermost being. Just as we ingest physical food and drink for fuel for our physical body, this is what we need to ingest for eternal life, for spiritual life. And it can come from no other source. As I was studying this week, I ran across a quote that I think is very succinct, very helpful for us to understand. It was one of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo was his name, and he wrote a lot of stuff. A lot of it's in Latin and other things that I cannot read. So thankfully, I ran across a translated version. And in speaking of this concept, he said, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. And that just distills down this idea that Christ is explaining. And it, and it is something that we can grab onto and understand and help us to make sense of what he is teaching. Verse 55, we'll carry on. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Other things that they have been searching for or trusting in were not food and the true sense. The Jews who were opposed to him had the wrong, not, wrong idea not only about who he was, but what their promised Messiah would look like. They were there, Christ explained to them back in verse 26, because the day before he filled their bellies. You're back because I gave you a free meal yesterday. That's the only reason you're here. Again, he doesn't soften words. He lays it out plainly. And that's what he is doing. 
They were after a free meal rather than trusting in Christ and what he has to offer them eternally. He continues on in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He continues on with this idea of eating and drinking flesh and blood. Again, as a reference to his atoning death. That they don't get yet. They don't understand, but Christ understands. He has the benefit of being able to see past where he is, where they are at this moment, and sees what needs to take place and what is in God's will and plan. What does he say in, in that verse? Whoever feeds and drinks abides in me and I in him. We see that theme run throughout John. Whoever eats and drinks, whoever believes... What's the essence of the gospel? Repent and believe. Believe what? Well, the first thing we have to believe is Christ is who he said he is. That he's done what he said he would do. And that his atoning death is the way for us to be offered eternal life. He's repeating it over and over and over and over and over again to these Jews and his disciples who are here listening the Jews are falling off fast. They want him to be king. Well, and we'll grumble a little bit. And now we're mad. And he's just making it worse. The disciples, you'll see next week, they're having a hard time with it too. Because it, again, they don't have a frame of reference for this. What do you mean my Messiah will die? I don't have a file to put that in. I don't have a way to process that where it makes sense to me. So again, he repeats it again in this verse and says, whoever eats and drinks abides in me and I in him. Christ refers to this often. John records it through the inspiration of the Spirit often in his gospel where he talks about the relationship between father and son. I abide in the father and he abides in me, Christ would teach many, many times. Then he goes on to further explain the same thing. I abide in my disciples, and my disciples abide in me. Now that looks different depending on the perspective of Christ or the perspective of the disciples, but what does that mean? That means that there is an indwelling. Christ later in this book will promise, I, it's better for me to go away because when I go, I'm going to send a helper. The helper will teach you all these things that you don't understand. The mystery will be made clear after my death and resurrection. That's part of the promise. Abiding. To live in. To, to, to be satisfied by and nurtured by. That's what he explains. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me, whoever feeds or believes on Christ has life from the Son, who has life in himself. He's not been given life. He has life in himself. And John is quite clear as he goes through his gospel that eternal life is available in no other way. Eternal life is available through no other means. Our time together ends with Verses 58 and 59. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. These Jews that Jesus was speaking to that day had expressed this great respect for the man of it. Their fathers, their ancestors ate and wandered in the wilderness. They had expressed great reverence for it and rightly so recognized that it was a gift given from God the Father as provision to them and provision for them. But Christ repeats himself here and makes plain physical food, even that miraculously given by God the Father, does not give you eternal life. It cannot give you eternal life. So what, what do we do with this? What's the point of this? What, why is this included in Scripture? Well, John, in verse 59, as, as is the case often again through his gospel, he gives us an eyewitness point of view, an eyewitness piece of information that helps us to tie this together, helps us to understand the setting. If nothing else, this is just tells us where he was. He said these things teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. But the invitation to us today is as clear as it was all those years ago in Capernaum. God has a plan to redeem for himself a people. Portions of that mystery are being revealed in real time to these Jews and to the disciples as Christ explains why he must die and how he must die. We have the benefit of the rest of Scripture. We have the benefit of having that mystery completely revealed. That that we saw as shadows and darkness and, and veiled in the Old Testament are made plain in Christ because the Word has made, been made flesh and dwelt among us. We read that in the beginning of this book. The Word incarnate has come to explain these things. It's all made clear in him, and that's what he's teaching us today. God has a righteous standard, and we cannot meet it. But God the just is also the justifier and sent his son who could meet the righteous standard, the only one who could meet the righteous standard, who willingly laid his life down, had his body broken and blood spilled on the cross was raised again on the third day and offers eternal life to those who eat and drink. Believe, and you have eaten. Pray with me, please. Father, again, we come to you thankful for your word. Father, in your gracious love for us, you have revealed these words to us. You have recorded through the inspiration of your Spirit and through John, the Gospel writer, what Christ taught this day to these people at a synagogue in Capernaum. Lord, through your Spirit, teach this to us. 
Help us to understand what we are to believe, how we are to believe, in whom we are to believe. Lord, we thank you for the gospel as it has been clearly displayed in our text today. We thank you that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Lord, we thank you that that is offered to us, that salvation, that we have the opportunity to trade our sin for his righteousness. Lord, you are merciful and you are gracious. Lord, take what we have read today and apply it to our hearts that we may be able to retrieve it and that we may be able to use it both for our witness and for our joy. Again, we thank you for our time together. In Christ's name, amen.